morning we're looking at Luke chapter 15. That would be on page 1042 of your pew Bibles if you would like to turn there. You know, getting out the door on a Sunday morning can be difficult at times, can't it? There's the scramble of getting the children ready. There's breakfast. There's getting your clothes out, getting dressed, making yourself look nice. Um, Getting everything together to head out the door. And you burn up the clock usually until the last possible second, if you're like me. And then uh, as you go to head out the door, you kind of give the universal symbol of. And no, that's no, Jeremy, it's not. You have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) It's you've lost your car keys, right? You can't find your car keys. You've misplaced your car keys somewhere in the house and you have no idea where they're at. Unfortunately, they don't have a clapper on them where you can locate them that way. Uh, so you start tearing apart the house, right? You, you flip over couch cushions. You look in your shoes. You check the oven. Maybe I put them in the oven for some reason. <laughs> you look everywhere in the world out of desperation, hoping against all odds that you're going to find your car keys. And then what happens when you find them? There's rejoicing, isn't there? Honey, I found them. I found my car keys. Everybody can stop looking now. Well, I tell you that humorously because this morning we're looking at Luke 15 and we're going to take a look at the truth this morning that God rejoices in finding lost sinners in the same way I rejoice when I find my car keys. But even more so, uh, God rejoices in the salvation of the lost. And what I want to do this morning is walk you through Luke 15. It is a long story, and I don't have time to do it justice by doing deep, deep exegesis. So we're going to flow through this story rather quickly and try to make some applications. So what I would like to do is just read through the text of Luke 15 first, and then we'll get to our points. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That would be Jesus. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is more joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. 
So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he said, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. What a great story. What a great parable. This morning, you see on your handout there, we're going to view redemption and forgiveness from three different perspectives this morning. There are three perspectives in this story that I want to touch on. And the reason I want to do it is so that we will just absolutely marvel at the grace of God in salvation. You and I have been saved by grace. Not by works, right? Lest any man should boast. And this is one of the most beautiful pictures of God's saving grace in the entire New Testament. In fact, some people call it the gospel within the gospels. It is the gospel. And it is something we should rejoice over this morning. Background of this passage, I want to give you a little context. It's it's hard when you're just picking up out of nowhere here like this. So I want to give you a little bit of context so you can find your place within the text of Scripture here. And in Luke's gospel, uh, this is the final year of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so the opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees is beginning to mount. 
He's starting to lose people because he's talking about things maybe that they don't want to hear. And the opposition from the leadership in Israel is beginning to grow. They're beginning to dislike him. They want him dead. They want him out of the way. And this passage in particular falls into a section of Luke's gospel known as Luke's travel log. Luke's travel log. And we call it that because Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem to die at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, is teaching his disciples on various aspects of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. And so this is taking place as Jesus is, in a sense, uh, making himself, uh, making his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. That just kind of sets the context a little bit for us. So this teaching, in essence, is in response to his, his rejection. He's speaking to people because he's being rejected. And he is at this point teaching on what true discipleship is. But turn back to 1322 and you can see that. It says, as he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem and picking up right here at the end of chapter 13 and verses 29 to 30, we get the first of four banquets. Jesus is going to begin to teach on who his disciples really are, who citizens of the kingdom really are by giving people four banquets. And uh, I won't go through all of these banquets with you, but uh, look at verse 29 of chapter 13 and you see they will come from the east and west and from north and from south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And then he goes on to describe um, this banquet. This is a banquet. Uh, Chapter 14, verses 7 to 24 is another banquet. Here, chapter 15, we see another banquet, verses 23 and 24. And following is a celebration over the son coming home. This lost son who has been estranged is now coming home. Let's celebrate. Let's have a banquet. And getting over to chapter 17 and looking at verse 10 in particular, well, verses 8 through 10, we could say, um, is the fourth of these four banquets. And you see in verse 10, Jesus identifies who citizens of the kingdom really are, who are true disciples of Jesus Christ. They are unworthy slaves, unworthy slaves. Citizens of the kingdom are unworthy slaves. Now, if you think back to Luke 15, what does the son say to the father? He says, Father, I'm not even worthy to be a slave, but take me in anyway. So that's how it fits in with the larger scope. And he's building to a very large point. And the point is this, that the Pharisees and the scribes and the leadership of Israel have rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Their opposition is mounting, it's gaining strength. And so the point of these parables in the broader context is to explain to the Jews that they are out and the Gentiles are in. They are out and the Gentiles are in. True citizens of the kingdom are those who recognize themselves as unworthy slaves. Now, having said all that, look at your hand out there. Let's look at the first perspective in this parable, and that would be that of the finder of the lost. I've entitled this um, Sermon, Lost and Found, and so we're going to look at uh, the finder of the lost first. 
And that would be the perspective of God himself. That would be God himself. Just a little more context. Uh, If you look at the text in verses uh, one through three, you get an idea of the background there. The tax collectors, the IRS agents. And the sinners notice they're grouped together. They are, in a sense, uh, clamoring to Jesus. It says that they are what they are drawing near to him. They are approaching him. They are gathering around him to listen to his teaching. And so uh, as they are doing that, as these disciples, these people, these unworthy slaves that want to hear what he's talking about, as they're drawing near to him in the background, we hear. And, and that's literally what it says in the Greek. Diagongusmas. It's an onomatopoetic word. What does that mean? It means it sounds like what it is. I want all of you to do this for me. Just go grumble, grumble, grumble. Do you hear that? Okay. That's gongusmas, and that's what's going on here. Okay? So what Jesus is in essence doing, as these people are drawing near, he's telling them a story, but he's not telling them a story. He's looking through them to the grumblers that are behind him. Okay? That's the context of this story. That's what's happening. Jesus is now speaking to the disillusioned leadership of Israel, and he's making a point to them. Um, And that's the context of this passage. The grumbling must have sounded something like this. Doesn't he know that he's defiling himself with these people? They're sinners. They're sinners, and they're, they're touching him, and they're around him, and he's eating with them, and ooh. We don't want to have anything to do with these people. It's shameful. It's shameful. It's shameful for the Messiah to be associating with such people. If he were really the Messiah, he wouldn't be doing that. You have to understand this parable in the context of a shame culture. See, we don't live in a shame culture, but... But the Jews would have understood this. They would have understood the defilement of hanging around with sinners and tax gatherers. They would have understood uh, the Gentiles were dogs and you don't associate with them. And that's exactly who Jesus is hanging around with. And so he comes to talk to them in this parable. And notice that it is this parable. Uh, It is not three parables. It is one parable. And that's important. Because these first two are leading up to the third. Okay, these first two sections of this parable, the lost sheep, the lost coin, are leading up to the lost son. Okay? They are part of the story, but they are not the point of the story. So the three stories combined serve to justify Jesus' ministry to the outcasts from the perspective of heaven. Okay? From the perspective of heaven, why is Jesus associating with these kind of people? Well, I'll tell you why. This is how God views them, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay? Now, we're mostly going to be focusing on the third section of this parable, the lost son. But again, I want to touch briefly on the first two. Again, Jesus looking through the crowds, talking to the Pharisees and the leadership, and he tells this first story of the lost sheep. And I want you to notice the ratio. It is one sheep out of a hundred. 
It is one sheep out of a hundred. And the shepherd, representing God the Father, he searches for the lost thing. That's the point of the story. God the Father is looking. He's searching. He's He's looking for that which is lost. And what does he do? He leaves the 99 righteous sheep. And the 99 sheep, he leaves in the wilderness. And he goes and he finds the one lost, repentant sinner, if you will. Okay? So he leaves the 99 sheep in the wilderness. And he goes after the one lost one. And it takes place outside of the house. Outside of the house. And that's important. Just hold on to that for a moment. Verse five. uh, uh, I'm sorry. Verse six. When he finds the sheep, what does he do? He throws it over his shoulders. He calls together his neighbors and his friends. And he says, rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. And then in verse seven, we get an explanation of it all. I tell you, in the same way. And this is the point. This is the refrain. In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety nine righteous people who have no need of repentance, i.e. the grumblers in the background, the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls his friends and his neighbors to rejoice with him. Rejoice with me. The father rejoices in heaven. And his friends and his neighbors are more than likely the angels. Look at verse 10. It says, in the presence of the angels. Joy in the presence of the angels. It doesn't mean this story is about the angels rejoicing in heaven. It's about God rejoicing in heaven. And he invites the angels and everybody else to rejoice with him. Rejoice with him. So in other words, it tells us that God the Father rejoices in the salvation of repentant sinners. That's the point of the story. God is the one rejoicing and he is the one seeking that which is lost. Okay. second section, the last coin. Notice the ratio. Now we go to one tenth, one out of ten, one out of ten. And we are now from outside the house to where? Inside the house. We're inside the house now. Understand with the two sons, as we get to that later, that there's going to be a son who's lost outside of the house and there's going to be a son who's lost inside of the house. Okay, Jesus is using these two stories here to draw you along and bring you to the third story of one sheep, one son lost in the world and one son who's lost right here in the house. That's the point. This coin is more than likely a drachma. And a drachma would have represented one day's wages for somebody. One drachma, one day's wages. So she had ten drachmas, and that more than likely represented her bride price or her dowry. And she's misplaced one of her, one of her drachmas. And it's nighttime, so what does she do? She lights a lamp. She tears apart the couch cushions. She looks in the oven. She uh, sweeps the floor frantically hoping maybe it's just under a layer of dirt and maybe she just hasn't seen it yet. So she tears the house apart until she finds the item. Diligently, she searches all night long. And when she finds it, what does she say? And this is representative of God again. 
she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, rejoice, for I have found the coin which I have lost. Rejoice. Here's the point again. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. God himself rejoices over the return of a repentant sinner. And the angels are invited to join in. One lost in the wilderness, one lost in the house. That leads you to the third story. And the value is increasing as we go along here. One out of 100 sheep, not as valuable. One out of 10 silver coins, pretty valuable. Now we're talking about one out of your only two sons. Really valuable. Okay, the value is increasing. The lost son. Ratio one out of two, 50 percent. And not only inside the house now, but inside the family, inside the family. Notice in the text, and I think people overlook this, the father splits the inheritance. He doesn't just give it to one son. He splits it evenly and gives it to both sons. So the son who stayed home had his inheritance, too. The son that took his part of the inheritance and left and squandered it. The son that remained at home became embittered against him and the father for how he was living. It was his choice to stay at home and sit on the money, though. What? Why don't you go out and live life a little? Huh? But drop to verse 20. I don't, I don't want to get to the story of the lost son yet. I want to deal with what the father's reaction is. Notice verse 20. What is the father doing? I mean, if you look at this story, the son is on his way home. He wasn't even in the driveway yet, and the father has been looking out for him the whole time. The father is seeking that which was lost. The father was looking for this son. And as the son approached from a long way off, way out there, the father saw him because he was looking for him. And so before he even gets there, the father runs to him. The father sees the son he re- returning and he feels compassion for him, it says. And he runs for him and he embraces him and he kisses him. And the father, verses 23 and 24, he celebrates that son's return in a big way. He rejoices. He rejoices. As we look through our New Testament, as I said, this is one of the most amazing portrayals of God in the entire New Testament. And I don't think it's an entire discourse on soteriology or the doctrines of salvation. But it is one of the most amazing portrayals of the character of God. God seeks those who are lost and rejoices when they are saved. That's the picture of God we have here. Look through the text with me. He's watching for the sun, right? He runs to meet the son before he even gets there. He embraces the son. He kisses the son. He calls others to rejoice with him. He gives the son his best robe. He puts a ring on his hand. He puts sandals on his feet. He kills the fatted calf for him to celebrate. He celebrates and he invites everybody else to celebrate with him. 
That's the picture of God that we have. Like verses 7 and verses 10, it's a picture of God rejoicing over one repentant sinner in heaven. He's rejoicing. As I said, this takes place in the context of a shame culture. And so for the Jews, they would be watching this. They would be listening to this story and they would hear that the father searches for the lost item. And in the case of the missing son, he's willing to disgrace himself to receive back this son. The father is willing to disgrace himself this way publicly. Are you kidding me? And he even rejoices in that son's return. He doesn't take it out on him and make him serve as a slave in the house and treat him harshly. He rejoices. He rejoices at the return of the son. It should remind you of Philippians 2. Right? What's Philippians 2? Christ, having all the rights to glory, right? What does he do? He doesn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? He humbles himself, taking on the form of a man, even a bondservant, even a slave, and dying a horrible death on that cross. Why? For you and me. For you and me. What an incredible picture of the father's love for his children and his willingness to forgive. The father rejoices over one sinner who repents. We ought to marvel at the grace of God, not simply that he saves sinners, but that he saved you and I. That's the point of this story. Despite the depth of our sin against him, he doesn't just save us. He lavishes his love upon us. God rejoices. God cares for lost sinners. He rejoices over repentant sinners and he embraces anybody who will turn to him in repentance and faith. This is a great picture of repentance as well. What is repentance? Well, it's leaving the slum of life and, and the sin that entangles us and it's turning and it's, it's turning Godward. It's not just stopping trying to sin. It's, it's leaving the sin completely and it's, it's searching for God's mercy and forgiveness. It's turning Godward. It's turning to Christ. go to the second perspective. The second perspective is that of the lost who is found, and that would be the younger son. And understand, the emphasis of this parable is on the father's response, not the son's sin. The emphasis is on the father's response. But, just so we understand the situation, I mean, we have so individualized things here in the U.S. that every story we read now, we we take it and we think it's about us and, and this is all about, uh, you know, I'm a sinner and I need to rejoice and repent. And that's all true. But the story hermeneutically is about God saving sinners. It's about God. It's about his character. It's about God and his willingness to forgive those who are in sin. So the younger son, as I said, received the inheritance And in fact, both sons, as I said, received their early inheritance. But the younger, what does he do? He packs up all of his belongings. He goes off to a distant country. 
which would mean Gentiles. And he squanders his inheritance on loose living. He squanders it. He plans poorly. So when it's all gone, what happens? He begins to starve. He's impoverished. So what does he do? He goes to a Gentile and he gets a job. He hires himself out as a day laborer in that country. And this guy, being the merciful Gentile that he is, sends him out to slop the pigs. Go out to the fields and feed the swine the pods, the carob pods. Feed the pigs. Now, if you're a Jew, what is a pig? He's defiled. He's defiled. So here you have this son who's going from inheritance to in the house and relationship with God the Father. And now he has gone all the way down to what? Slopping defiled pigs. Okay? He has lost it all. It would be a step up for him if he could eat the carob pods with the pigs. He had gone from honored son to wretched, defiled sinner. And it says in the text, nobody was helping him out at all. Nobody. Nobody would lift a finger to help this guy out. But verse 17, notice this. When he came to his senses, literally, if you look uh, in your margin note, he came to himself. He came to himself. He thought to himself, self, your father's servants have plenty of bread, literally a flood of bread, and you're starving. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? I will go home as an unworthy slave. I will ask my father to take me in as an unworthy slave. That ties you into your bigger context. I'm going to bank on my father's willingness to have mercy and to forgive me. Because I've blown it. And I need him to forgive me. And so this is exactly what he does. And the funny thing about it is he doesn't even get a chance to spit it out what he's rehearsed. He gets to the father. The father runs and embraces him and kisses him and lavishes all this affection on him. He goes, wait, 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 I got something to tell you. And so he tells them and notice the father doesn't even respond to that. Notice the father doesn't even respond to that. He just says, forget that. Let's celebrate You're home. You were dead and now you're alive. Praise God. You know, many of you have made disasters of your lives. I've spoken to you. I know what's going on in your lives. You are, if I could say this, slopping the pigs of Gentiles. You've made a hash of things. You are eating the defiled pig food. And that would be a step up for you sometimes if you could actually eat the defiled pig food. You've sinned against God and heaven. And literally the passage says to the heavens. You've sinned. You've sinned against God and trashed your life with immoral and loose living. Can I say to you this morning, snap out of it. Come to your senses. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? There's mercy. There's forgiveness. God is willing to embrace you and to forgive you. Why would you stay in that situation? 
Why would you live without the forgiveness of God? What are you thinking? In salvation, you know, God gives you the ability to see your sin and to turn from it. And to him. And that's what he does. But you need to respond in faith, beloved. You need to respond to the forgiveness of God. The Father will embrace you with open arms if you will simply turn from your sin and towards him. You will find that God will lavish his love and affection upon you. He will embrace you. Yes, you've messed up, but there is no one, no one who is beyond the forgiveness of God. Not a single one of us. Amen? I want you to listen to the words of this song. We're not done yet, but I've asked my brother Greg to come up and sing a song for you. Would you listen to this song? And if you are lost, I invite you to be found this morning. Would you be found? Repent and seek God's forgiveness. Cast yourself upon the mercy and forgiveness of your Heavenly Father. Greg, would you come up? I could not find my way Oh, how I long to see the light again Lord, here I stand Asking once again Unworthy of the love you've given me. I've tried it on my own. I want to come back home. Cause in your arms I find. Home is really where I long to be. Home 
give to me. We've seen through the eyes of two of the people in this parable, but the strength and the kick of this thing comes in the perspective of the lost son or the son that is home, the found one who is lost. So the final perspective, if you look on your handout, is that of the older brother, the one who was in a sense found, but is as lost as the day is long. Remember who Jesus is speaking to, the scribes and the Pharisees, right? He's looking through the crowds to those that are grumbling. And go back to the refrain. Verse 7, verse 10, verse 23, the shepherd, the woman and the father all say, rejoice with me. Understand that the gospel oftentimes is in the prepositions. He says, rejoice with me. He's saying, to the Pharisees and the scribes. It's not just that I'm rejoicing. I want you to rejoice with me over the salvation of the lost. The father celebrates the younger son's return, but the older brother, what does he do? Starting in verse 25, we'll see what he does. He comes in from the field He approaches the house. He hears all this celebration going on. And he says, what's this all about? And the servants tell him the good news, right? The good news. And what is his response? He becomes enraged. Enraged. The word is orge there. Wrathful. He becomes wrathful. And refuses to go into the house and celebrate. He refuses flat out. I'm not going in there. And in verse 28, look at the father again. This story is it's about the father. But look at the father's response. Shameful again. He comes out and he begs the older brother. Come in. Come on. Come in. Rejoice. And the son says, no way. 
There is no way I'm coming in there to rejoice. Verse 29, the older brother says, look at his response. Look, for so many years, I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. Now, if you look at the language there, he's saying all this time and not even once I have broken a commandment. All this time. Is that true? And yet, he says, you've never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But, and this is emphatic, this guy, this brother, look what he did. He went out and devoured your wealth on prostitutes and loose living. And what do you do? You go and you kill the fatted calf for him. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I don't care about my lost brother. What about me? What about what I deserve? I've been here working hard all this time and I get zip. I get nothing. Where's my party? Why don't you kill a fattened calf for me so I can celebrate with my friends? Do you hear the pronouns in there? I, 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 me, me, me. What about me? It's obvious. It is obvious that people listening to this story, the scribes and the Pharisees who are self-righteous, and if you just flip over, uh, they are called uh, those who are lovers of money. In chapter 16, verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. This older brother was obviously supposed to be the Pharisees and the scribes, and it was obviously supposed to represent their self-righteous attitude towards those who were lost, towards sinners. They didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw everybody else as sinners. So this parable addresses the problem which they had with Jesus' policy of consorting with sinners and outcasts. And the answer was that the Father Himself was greatly concerned to seek and save the lost in contrast to the Pharisees and the scribes who could care less about the lost. They could care less. The point, this is not, as I said, a whole discourse on the doctrines of grace or salvation. There is only one point to make here, and that is that the Father has great concern for the lost which is reflected in the ministry of Jesus Christ is reflected in his ministry. See, the problem here is that both sons were lost. But as I said, the two stories leading up to this third story gives you the impression that one was lost out in the wilderness and one was lost right there in the house. Right there in the house. The father reminded the elder son, he said, you've always been with me. You've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was saved. It could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily. It just meant that he had the privileges of divine fellowship for many years, which the Lord had given to the nation of Israel. 
You think about that. Remember, Israel had the law. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the offerings. They had the covenant land. Yet their rejection of the Messiah showed that they weren't really true sons of the Father, were they? They were lost, in a sense, in the house of Israel. I don't have time to take you there, but I would refer you to Isaiah 1, 1 through 6, and read those verses carefully. So what do we do with this? How do we make some application of this? Well, beloved, if we are going to reach this community with the gospel of Christ, we have to go to sinners. Amen? We have to share the gospel with sinners. And we're sinners too. And we have to rejoice in what the Father is doing. We have to rejoice. We cannot adopt the attitude of the older brother or we will absolutely undo everything we are trying to accomplish that God is trying to accomplish. Well, let me rephrase that. We can't undo what God is going to do, but we can undo what we are trying to accomplish for God. Let me, that's a better way to say it. Beloved, if people with broken lives come here, praise God. Praise God. Such were some of you, right? Such are some of you, right? Amen? There are lost people out there in the world, and there are lost people where? You finish it for me. Right here in this house. Right here. Right here. Loose living and self-righteous legalism are equally deadly sins. Okay? Equally deadly. We tend to think of the wretched prostitute as being a worse sinner. Uh, But listen to this quote. Listen to this quote. It's short, but hang with me. Those who are righteous or think they are, are still loved by God. The difficulty is to get them to realize that others are as well. Equally difficult, perhaps even more difficult, is to get them to realize that God's grace, not their own imagined righteousness, is the basis for their own salvation as well. A moralistic view of the divine human relationship stands in the way of one's own fellowship with God, and it impedes the imagination in regard to God's relationship with others. Did you get that? What's he saying? He's saying the self-righteous might be saved, but if they are, they really, really misunderstand the grace of God. And not only that, but it stands in the way of them misunderstanding God's grace towards the lost. That's what he's saying. You know, as we take a look at ourselves, a long, hard look this coming year, are we going to say we're sinners like everybody else? Unworthy slaves? Unworthy slaves, you and I? Saved by the grace of God? Or are we going to adopt the attitude of the older brother? I don't need repentance. I keep all of God's commandments. My sins aren't as bad as theirs, right? I don't want those sinners here. I won't rejoice in what God is doing. 
What about ministries that meet my needs? Why does everything have to be so evangelistic? Why can't we have nice parties for us? You see what I'm saying? God is seeking the lost and He wants us to rejoice in that effort. Look at verse 31. The Father said, We had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. This brother was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and he's been found. We had to celebrate. Loved ones, we have to celebrate. We have to celebrate over the salvation of the lost. And it's going to cost us something to do it. It's going to cost us something to do it. It's going to cost us our pride. It's going to cost us our self-righteousness. It's going to cost us stewardship of the gospel. Notice what it cost the father. You know, he was willing to sacrifice the fattened calf to celebrate. He was willing to put on his best robe, his best jewelry, his best sandals, embrace the son. Interestingly, what follows in chapter 16 is parables about stewardship. Beloved, I would just ask you this morning to search your heart and ask yourself, which perspective of, is, is mine in this parable? Which perspective is mine? Is it the perspective of the finder of the lost? Is it God's perspective? Are you still lost? Are you still lost? Are you the lost one who has yet to be found? Or are you the found one who's here in the house who's really lost? How well do you understand the grace of God? Do you, do you marvel at God's grace towards you? A wretched sinner. Or do you somehow think you deserve God's grace? Let's pray. Our Father, we have only now to allow your word to search our hearts, to find ourselves in these words. Our Father, help us to understand your character more and to reflect that character as your children. Our Father, give us a passion for the lost that will not cease until we can all rejoice together in glory. Lord, help us to have your perspective from this parable. Search our hearts, O Father, and find any wicked way that may be within us. Lord, draw us to yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Search me, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way. Lead me in the way everlasting, everlasting. Oh, search me, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Search me, search me, oh God, and know my Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way. Lead me in the way everlasting. Everlasting. You show me the way of life. Presenceless fullness of joy at your right hand are treasures forevermore, forevermore. Search me, Search me, oh, 